All right, well, I hope you all aren't too tired after skipping an hour last night uh, because this passage in Revelation that we're about to look at is not an easy one. In fact, when I started preparing this message, I, uh, I started by reading something from N.T. Wright. And uh, this is what he said. Some of you might know the scholar N.T. Wright. Uh, People find many books puzzling, but the Bible is often the most puzzling of all. People find many parts of the Bible puzzling, but Revelation is often seen as the most puzzling book of all. And people find Revelation puzzling, but the chapter now before us is, for many, the most puzzling part of all. And I thought, great. (laughs) It's not like the last few chapters have been easy. So this week, it's going to be very important for us to remember our three interpretive principles, uh, especially the second one, which is interpreting Revelation is hard, and we have to be humble as we interpret it. But I'm trusting that the Holy Spirit is going to guide us in our understanding. And even if I don't get every single detail right, I I think where we're going to land, the application is solid. So uh, if you want to follow along in your own Bible... Open up to where we left off last week in uh, Revelation chapter 10. And let's pray before we get into this. Lord Jesus, uh, we thank you for this uh, mysterious, enigmatic, and exciting book. And Lord, I pray that as we read from it this morning, uh, that your Holy Spirit would speak to us, uh, that you would impress on our hearts the things that you want us to know and receive And I just pray that we would be open to hear from you. In Jesus' name, amen. Quick review of where we've been so far. Uh, In chapter 4 and 5, we were given a vision of God's heavenly throne room. And we were told that the one sitting on the throne was holding a scroll sealed with seven seals. And we were told that there is only one person who has the authority to open up those seals. The Lamb who has been slain. And of course, that is Jesus Christ. And over the last three weeks, we've been looking at what happens as Jesus unseals the scroll. As it's unsealed, terrible things happen on earth. War and famine and disease and death and political turmoil and social turmoil, natural disasters. And uh, we saw that when the seventh seal got opened, then we were introduced to a whole other round of judgments, of terrible things. Uh, The seven trumpets uh, sounded. And as the trumpets sounded, we uh, saw ecological crises and demonic attacks and this vicious conquering army. Um, And I suggested that all of this is a description of things that are happening between Christ's first and second coming. As Jesus unseals the scroll, in other words, as Jesus fulfills the scriptures and he moves history forward toward the establishment of God's kingdom, there's going to be a lot of terrifying stuff that happens in the world. There's a lot of terrifying stuff that's happened in the past, there's terrifying stuff that's happening now, and there's terrifying stuff that's going to happen until Christ returns. Now, where we're picking up today in chapter 10, uh, we are waiting for the seventh trumpet blast. The sixth trumpet blast happened. We're still waiting for the, the seventh one. And this is what happens. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven. He was robed in a cloud with a rainbow above his head. His face was like the sun. 
and his legs were like fiery pillars. He was holding a little scroll, which lay open in his hand. Now let's stop here for a moment. What many interpreters think, and I am inclined to agree with them, is that this little scroll is the same scroll that Jesus unsealed. Last time we heard about a scroll, right, it was the scroll that Jesus was opening. And now, what do we have? The seals have been opened, and there is an open scroll in the hand of this angel. So, this is a big moment in the book of Revelation, because we finally come to the point in the book where the actual content of that scroll is about to be revealed to John. So let's keep reading. The angel planted his right foot. The angel planted his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and he gave a loud shout like the roar of a lion. When he shouted, the voices of the seven thunders spoke. And when the seven thunders spoke, I was about to write. But I heard a voice from heaven say, Seal up what the seven thunders have said, and do not write it down. Now, what is that about? That is a very strange, enigmatic moment. Before John gets near the scroll, he hears something, and he's about to write it down, but then a voice says, no, 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 don't write that down, seal it up. Just as that scroll that Jesus unsealed was sealed, What John just heard is supposed to be sealed. It's not supposed to be revealed to us. Now, that leads me to ask, what is the point of revealing to us that God told John not to reveal something? It's, you know, kind of like when a kid says, I've got a secret, but I can't tell you. Why even tell us that there's a secret? What's the point? Here's my best guess. I think this is included to keep us humble. Because this reminds us that even though this revelation reveals a lot of things to us, it does not reveal everything. You know, if, if you could actually interpret this book perfectly, which you can't, but if you could interpret it perfectly, there would still be stuff about God's plan that you don't know about. How do we know that for sure? Because we're not going to know what the seven thunders said, what that was all about, until God's plan is fulfilled. So, no matter how well we understand this book, God may still surprise us in some ways. You know, we have to realize, we have to have the humility to accept the fact that we don't understand how all of this is going to work out exactly. We don't know exactly how God is going to rid the world of evil and establish his everlasting kingdom. We don't know exactly how justice is going to unfold, how this is all going to come together. We can say some things with confidence because God has revealed some things to us. But he has not revealed everything. That is one of the things that he reveals. He reveals that he has not revealed everything. And so that should keep us humble and it should leave us open to being surprised by God. All right, continuing in verse 5. Then the angel I had seen standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven 
And he swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created the heavens and all that is in them, the earth and all that is in it, and the sea and all that is in it, and said, there will be no more delay. But in the days when the seventh angel is about to sound his trumpet, the mystery of God will be accomplished just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. So, in other words, these judgments that you've been seeing, these seals, these trumpets, they're not going to go on forever. The seventh and final trumpet is going to sound, and when it does, the end will come. Evil is finally going to be taken care of, justice will be done, things will be made right with the world. And the way that John describes it is, the mystery of God will be accomplished. Which is a beautiful way of putting it. The mystery of God will be accomplished. Once again, there's a reminder that we can't understand all this until the end, right? What's, what's unfolding is the mystery of God. It will not be revealed until the end. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me once more. Go, take the scroll that lies open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and asked him to give me the little scroll. He said to me, take it and eat it. It will turn your stomach sour, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and ate it. It tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach turned sour. Then I was told, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. I don't know about you, but I was thinking, I wanted to see what was on that scroll, and now John ate it. <laughs> so this is a good time for us to be reminded that of that first interpretive principle, right? Revelation is a very symbolic book. Okay, scrolls are not edible, and prophets don't literally eat scrolls. But this symbolizes something. When John eats the scroll, it represents him taking in the message. And it represents the fact that this message for him is not just supposed to be information. It's not just supposed to be words on a page, right? It's, it's supposed to be something that he takes in and it transforms him. It affects the way he sees the world. It affects the way that he lives. It affects what he says, Okay, And in the same way, that's what the Bible is supposed to be for us, right? It's supposed to be spiritual nourishment, spiritual food. Uh, it's not just supposed to be information, but it's supposed to be something that we take in and it transforms us. So that's why John is commanded to eat it. And so this scroll, this scroll that was in the hand of God, right, and, and that only the Lamb could open and unseal, uh, it, it, this scroll is finally revealed to John. And he takes it in, he processes its message, which, by the way, we still haven't heard, and his reaction to it is what? It's mixed. On the one hand, part of him says, oh, this is sweet. This is beautiful. This is what I desire, right? But another part says, this makes me feel sick. So why does he have that mixed response? Well, that's hard to answer until we actually know what the scroll said, right? And many interpreters think, and I'm in inclined to agree with them, that what we're about to read next, chapter 11, is the content of the scroll. So let's read that and then see if we get our answer for why John has this mixed reaction, okay? 
And a quick heads up, when, when N.T. Wright said that uh, the most puzzling part of the most puzzling book of the Bible is, is what we're reading today, it's this section right now. This is it. So if you're confused, you're in good company. Uh, but I will read the whole section, and then we'll go back and look at it piece by piece. So, I was given a reed like a measuring rod, and I was told, go and measure the temple of God and the altar and count the worshipers there. But exclude the outer court. Do not measure it, because it has been given to the Gentiles. They will trample on the holy city for 42 months. And I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. These men have power to shut up the sky so they will not rain during the time they are prophesying, and they have power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. Now when they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them and overpower and kill them. Their bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom in Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, men from every people, tribe, language, and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts, because these two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. But after three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and terror struck those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies looked on. At that very hour, there was a severe earthquake, and a tenth of the city collapsed. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past, the third woe is coming soon. All right. What was that all about? All right, we'll start at the beginning. John is told to measure the temple of God and the altar and count the worshipers there. So first we have to ask, what is meant by the temple of God here? Temple of God. You know, obviously the image we're supposed to have in our mind is of the holy temple that was at Jerusalem. But it's important for us to recognize that by the time Revelation was written, it was in the 90s A.D., and that temple no longer existed. As Jesus had prophesied, uh, that temple was destroyed. It was destroyed in 70 AD. So when John talks about a temple being measured, there is no more physical temple when he's writing this. Also, at this point in history, Christians had come to see the temple as unnecessary for worship. The temple, of course, is where animal sacrifices were offered, and at this time, you know, Christians recognized that Jesus was the perfect once-and-for-all sacrifice. No more sacrifices are necessary. Also, uh, by this time, Christians had come to recognize the dwelling place of God not as a building, but as the people of God. 
Um, there, are, there are multiple times in the New Testament where people refer to the church as the temple of God. The people of God is the temple. And uh, if you're not convinced of that, let me remind you of something that Jesus said to the church in Philadelphia back in chapter 3. You might remember this. He said, him who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. So here Jesus is clearly using the temple as a metaphor for his people, right? So this isn't about a literal temple here. This is about the church, the people of God. So our next question should be, what does it mean for John to measure the people of God? Measure the people of God. And from what I understand, this is like saying, mark as protected the people of God. And when you think about that in that way, what's going on here is actually very similar to what happened in chapter 7. Some of you might remember that in chapter 7, there was a different uh, symbol of the people of God. It was the 144,000 Jews. And in that vision as well, the people of God were protected because they were sealed with a mark on their foreheads, right? So what's going on here in this image is very similar to what went on in chapter 7. Only this time, the people of God is not represented by 144,000 Jews, but by a temple. And the sign that they are protected is not a seal on their foreheads, but that the temple is being measured. Okay, so it's a very similar image. Now, you might ask, okay, why isn't the outer court protected? Why is there this specific instruction not to measure the outer court? And here's my best answer. The temple, okay, if it represents the people of God, the inner court represents the part of us that cannot be harmed by the world. Right? If, our, if our faith is in Christ, ultimately we are sealed, we are protected, we are safe. Our soul is safe. Our spirit is safe. Right? There is nothing that the world can throw at us that can destroy us. Ultimately, we're going to be okay. But is there any promise that in this life, our outer court, our bodies, are not going to be trampled on, are not going to be harmed? No. In fact, the book of Revelation is clear about that. Right? And the story that comes after this about the two witnesses also makes that clear. Because what happens to the two witnesses? They die, right? Their outer court is attacked. But as we see from the story, their inner court is protected and safe, right? They are victorious. They are vindicated. Okay, so let's talk about the two witnesses. This little story here is, again, I believe, the primary content of the scroll that Jesus unsealed. This is what John ate and had the mixed reaction to. So, what's it all about? Well, like I said last week, I am still very much a student of this book, not a master. I am still learning. But the interpretation that makes the most sense to me goes something like this. The two witnesses are, once again, a symbol of the church. I know I keep saying that about everything. It's a symbol of the church. But I really think this is true. The two witnesses are a symbol of the church. And this story, we might call it a parable, is revealing how God is going to work through his church 
between Christ's first and second comings. So I'll, I'll say that again. I believe this is a parable where the two witnesses are a symbol of the church, and the parable is revealing how God is going to work through his church between Christ's first and second comings. And just so you know, this is not some sort of Ryan Spooner original here. This is not a novel interpretation. A lot of people uh, think this way. A lot of people don't agree with this, too. Um, But at this point, this is the interpretation that I find the most compelling. Uh, Now, you might be wondering, okay, why should we interpret this story this way? Why shouldn't we just see it as, you know, a literal account of something that's going to happen in the future with two literal witnesses? Well, first, let's talk about the numbers in this story. Remember, numbers are often symbolic in Revelation. We always got to keep that in mind. And we should notice that in this story, the number three and a half keeps coming up. It actually is mentioned four times in this parable. Now, why do I say that? Well, it says that the Gentiles will trample on the city, the holy city, for 42 months. Uh, It says that the two witnesses will prophesy for 1,260 days, and it says that the witnesses will lie dead for 3.5 days. And, uh, of course, a little later it it repeats 3.5 days. And what I want us to see is that each of these is a 3.5. So um, 42 months divided by 12 is 3.5 years. 1,260 days divided by 360 is 3.5 years. You might be saying, wait, wait a second. No, no, a year is 365 days. Well, no, for John, they considered a year 360 days, okay? So 3.5 years, and then, of course, it's 3.5 days that the bodies lie lie dead. So 3.5 keeps coming up in this story, and so we have to ask ourselves, is there significance to the number 3.5? And there is. Uh, This is a number that has biblical precedent for representing a time of trial and tribulation. A time of trial and tribulation. And I'm not going to uh, bore you with all the reasons for that. Hopefully you can take my my word for that. Um, But I'll just say that the origins for that association come from the book of Daniel, associating that number 3.5 with a time of of trial and tribulation. So if you want to look look into that on your own, I welcome you to do it, but I'm I'm not going to explain it uh, now. So I do not think that John is using these numbers to tell us a literal duration of time. I think he's using these numbers to tell us about a quality of time. And that quality of time is a time of trial and tribulation. Okay. And so for the church, the time of trial and tribulation is the whole time from Christ's first coming to his second coming. Because for that entire time, even though the church's inner court is safe, the outer court is open to attack. The church is always open to persecution. So the point of these numbers is to tell us that until Christ returns, the church is going to face trials. Now, Why should we think of the two witnesses as representing the church? Why think that way? 
Well, well, for one thing, if what I just said about those time units is correct, then obviously it follows that the witnesses would represent the church, right? Because we're talking about the whole time between Christ's first and second comings. But aside from that, even if we don't assume that I'm right about seeing the numbers in that way, there are other reasons to think of the witnesses as representing the church. Uh, for one, there's the obvious fact that the church is called to bear witness to Jesus Christ. Right? The Bible says that we are supposed to be God's ambassadors in the world. We're supposed to be people who testify through our words and through our actions that Jesus is alive and he is Lord. And a big part of why Revelation was written was to encourage Christians to keep doing that in spite of persecution, in spite of hardship. Even when the Roman emperor was threatening them you know, with, with persecution, they were still called to be witnesses. A second reason to think that the two witnesses represent the church is that they're called lampstands. Lampstands. And you might remember that earlier in the book of Revelation, when that term lampstands was used, it was used to refer to churches. Third reason to think of uh, two witnesses as representing the church is that in Jewish law, a minimum of two witnesses was needed for testimony to be considered valid. So this is a symbol of the fact that the church's testimony is valid. And then a fourth reason to think these witnesses are the church is because they are doing what the church is supposed to do. Um, obviously, they're bearing witness to Christ, right? But to go into more detail, uh, we see this in several ways. For one thing, uh, they're clothed in sackcloth. And, and that means that they're calling people to repentance, and of course, that is part of what we in the church are supposed to do, right? We're supposed to call people to repentance. Now, the church doesn't always have a great history in how it goes about doing that, okay? But ultimately, what it means to lead someone to repentance is to, to call them to view God and to view their lives in a new way, in a transformed way, in a way that brings life and flourishing to the world, right? And we in the church are supposed to be inspiring people to repentance, to God-honoring repentance. These witnesses, it says, they also overcome their enemies in a very interesting way. It says they overcome their enemies with their mouths. Verse 5 says, if anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. Now again, I don't think that's literal. You know, I don't think someday some prophet is going to come who's like a fire-breathing dragon, right? But what this is a symbol of is that these witnesses overcome their enemies, not with violence, but through the word of God. They overcome by what they say, what they preach. And again, that's what all of us in the church are called to do. We don't fight our enemies with violence, but with the word of God. Now, I realize verse 6 might seem like a stretch for applying it to the church. It says, these men have power to shut up the sky so that it will not rain during the time they are prophesying. They have power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. Wow. But what we need to recognize is what is being described here are things that Moses and Elijah did, who were Old Testament prophets. And I think the point is that we in the church stand in the same tradition as those prophets. 
through the Holy Spirit, we have great power. The same Spirit that gave power to those prophets gives power to us today. Now, I think often we have far more power than we recognize or we use. But we are in the same tradition as those prophets. Now, I want us to notice something, though. This story does not say that the witnesses used their power to do the things that Moses and Elijah did. It says that they have the it, does it? Their power ends up being demonstrated in a different way. Not through turning water into blood or through sending a plague, but through something else. What is that? Well, first, they die. The beast, and we'll talk more about the beast in the coming weeks, but the beast kills them. They're martyred, right? Their enemies gloat over them. But, like Jesus, they rise again. And the result of this dying and rising is what? The result is that people repent. Verse 13 says that the survivors were terrified, and what did they do? They gave glory to the God of heaven. People who were once gloating over these dead prophets are now giving glory to God. Now, this is so significant, okay? This is where we're really coming to the main point of all this. Because this is the first time in Revelation that we've heard about anybody repenting. Uh, You might remember, last week we looked at this whole series of terrifying judgments, uh, ecological crises, demonic attacks, and invading army, right? And do you remember what the end result of all of it was? If you don't remember, this was the result. The rest of mankind that were not killed by these plagues still did not repent. They did not repent. The plagues did not bring repentance. But what does bring repentance? What brings repentance is when when the people of the church are willing to suffer. When people are willing to bear witness to Christ, even when it means death, and yet the church lives and thrives, even in the midst of persecution, that brings people to their knees. That brings people to a place where they glorify God. Martyrs is the seed of the church. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And that is what this parable is depicting here. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And, you know, I want us to appreciate how effective the church's witness is here. Right? We're told that there's an earthquake and a tenth of the city collapses and 7,000 people were killed. But the survivors all give glory to God. Now again, here's some numbers, so we have to ask ourselves, is there significance to a tenth and 7,000? And there is. They have symbolic value. Why? Because these are numbers of people in some Old Testament stories who were spared judgment. They were small remnants of people who were saved. So, for example, the 7,000, when Elijah was was doing his ministry, he was told that God would preserve a faithful remnant, meaning a small portion of Jews, and that it would be 7,000. 7,000 Jews would be saved. But in this story, it's 7,000 not who are being saved, but are dying, and the rest are giving glory to God. 
So what, what's saved here is not a tiny minority, but the majority. And the point here is that when the church is willing to suffer, it is a powerful, effective witness. Now, I think we can understand why, when John ate the scroll, it made him feel a little sick, right? Because the scroll revealed both good news and bad news. The good news, God's people ultimately are safe. They're going to be vindicated, they're going to be victorious, and many, many people will come to repent through their witness. That is good, good news, right? But what's the bad news? <laughs> the bad news is that the most effective witness involves suffering and sometimes even involves death. Now, that's not a message I want to hear, <laughs> but that's what the scroll reveals, right? That's the message that the slain lamb leads us to, the message that evil is overcome through sacrificial, suffering love. That's what gives our testimony power. That's what leads people to repentance. That's what leads to transformation of hearts and minds, a transformation in how people think about God and their relationship to him. Sacrificial suffering witness. That's what does it. Now, when Revelation was written, it was written to Christians who knew that their faithful, their faithful witness to Jesus, for Jesus, could lead to suffering and death. And today, there are places in the world where faithful witness to Jesus can lead to suffering and death. Now, fortunately, in the 21st century in America, that's not really a threat for us. But we still need to hear this story because it's reminding us that our witness in the world has power when it costs us something. I'll say that again. We need to hear this story because it reminds us that our witness in the world has power when it costs us something. Now, I don't think the story is telling us that we should be seeking death and suffering. We're not supposed to go looking for it. But it is calling us to be faithful to Christ, and it's reminding us that if we want to see other people come to know the Lord, usually that involves some suffering on our part. That's the bitter part of the scroll. Our witness for Jesus has power when it costs us. And as the trumpets show us, judgment and tragedy alone doesn't have that power to bring people to repentance. But when followers of Jesus are willing to live in a way that costs them something, that has power. Now, we don't necessarily have to literally die to be witnesses for our faith. But we do have to die to ourselves to some extent. We have to die to the selfishness that lives in us. You know, we have to be willing to make sacrifices. We, we have to be willing to be generous. We have to be willing to give of our time and our energy and Maybe sometimes our money, you know, in order to draw people to the Lord. In order to inspire people to repentance. I want to finish with a quote uh, that I want to encourage you to write it down, think about it this week. Uh, it's from a man named Celestian Huhard. And he said, to be a witness means to live in such a way that one's life would not make sense if God did not exist. 
I love that. Is there anything about our lives that wouldn't make sense to someone who doesn't believe in Jesus? Something about the way we live that defies explanation. You know, in this story of the two witnesses, there are things about the two witnesses that defy explanation. And ultimately what defies explanation is their willingness to sacrifice in order to witness to the world that Jesus is Lord. So is there anything about our faith that wouldn't make sense to someone who doesn't believe? And and chances are um, that there isn't unless our faith costs us something. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, this is a hard passage, but I pray that you would help us to reflect on it this week. To recognize that the way you've set things up, Lord, you want your people, your church, uh, to to help draw people to you. And, And the way that you've set up for us to do that is through sacrificial love. And that is costly. That does involve that does involve sacrifice. And Lord, help us to think about uh, the ways in which you want us to make sacrifices so that we can help reveal to the world who you are and what you're like. God, I just pray that you'd be with us this week as we process. Uh, We thank you and praise you for your faithfulness. In Jesus' name, amen.